0: You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. I'm here with Rick Rule, uh, chairman of Sprott U.S. Global Asset Management. Thanks for coming on, Rick. Thanks for the opportunity, Peter. I was just, Rick, I was just in um, Singapore. I had the opportunity to speak to Jim Rogers. We talked about the average commodity bull market cycle, which he says is about 17 years. The most recent one, the most recent commodity bear cycle, ending in 1999. What are your thoughts in terms of where we are in the commodity bull market cycle?
1: Well, I would defer to Jim in some way, shape, or form. In my own experience studying cyclicality, he's done a lot more of it Mm -hmm. than I. I I don't see as many rigid correlations as he he does. Pardon me. I certainly remember coming into the business in the early part of the decade of the 70s, which was a magnificent super cycle. Jim is a little bit older than me, so his experience in that cycle may have begun in the mid-60s. I think of it as beginning in 1971 and ending with a bang in 1981. I also remember, interestingly, that in the middle of that super cycle, the 1970s super cycle, in 1975, an amazing collapse. Uh, People forget when they remember the decade of the 1970s, which was very good for the resource business generally and for the gold business in particular. That in 1975, the resource sector, and in particular the gold sector, had a 50% retracement, a 50% cyclical down move in a secular bull market. and mm-hmm. uh, That will, I think, perhaps put the... Uh, decline that we have recently had in both gold and resources generally in the context. It doesn't mean necessarily that we are at the end of a resource super cycle. It may mean that we're in the the middle of a resource super cycle. But to be completely honest with you, a discussion of resource cyclicality would be better had with Jim than with me. I'm um, more of a credit and securities analyst than I am an economist. Right, right. Yeah, it was just interesting as a side note. He did he did
0: kind of indicate to me that it was near probably the end of it rather than at least at the beginning. That's right. that's kind of like the, the takeaway I got from him. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick, you also mentioned a lot about the current uh, war that the U.S. dollar has with gold. I should mind you for my hedge fund, my largest position is actually in the U.S. dollar, considering the currency war that it's having relative to a basket of like other currencies such as the euro and, and the yen, for example. Can you discuss a little bit about the dynamics of, of the gold price relative to the U.S. dollar? I know you also discuss about the impact of real interest rates and how it's almost inevitable. What, what are your thoughts about that? What should investors be looking at um, when comparing gold to the U.S. dollar in this environment where um, all the currencies are almost effectively racing to the
1: bottom? Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion, and yes, I, I, I think, your, I think your, last dis, your last description is the most accurate. We are engaged in a race to the bottom, and in that particular race, thankfully, the U.S. dollar is losing. I have heard the U.S. dollar in the context of other currencies referred to as the prettiest mare at the slaughterhouse, and I yeah. think maybe that puts it in perspective. Uh, we are losing the race to the bottom, but people need to be reminded that Americans are com- extremely competitive – And ultimately, we intend to win every race that we engage in, including, of course, that race to the bottom. It's interesting that I'm an American, and so I'm a beneficiary of the strength of the U.S. dollar. Mm. You living in Asia, uh, in one sense, are a victim. I say that because uh, in Asia and around the world, they make all kinds of good stuff. Oil, cars, computers, cell phones. And they ship them to us, and we send back dreams painted on a piece of paper. Dollars. Uh Uh-huh. It's a superb exchange and frankly I hope it goes on for a very long time I don't suspect it will except that the competition that's offered up by other currencies is so anemic my friend Doug Casey famously describes the dollar as an IOU nothing which as he points out is preferable to the euro which is as he describes it a who owes you nothing Some of the who's on the periphery, Greece in particular, have called that who owes you nothing into context. Now, with specific regards to your question, which is the dollar versus gold, uh, I think that although there are 50 or 60 factors that people cite in the context of the gold price, the most important factor is that gold is denominated in U.S. dollars. If you look at the performance of gold in almost any other currency in the world last year, gold did extremely well. But measured against the U.S. dollar, it did poorly. Gold has traditionally done well during periods of uncertainty. And with regards to the dollar last year, it was a period of unparalleled confidence. Mm -hmm. I think that voters and investors on a global basis would like to believe in the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. They would like to believe themselves to be in the hands of competent stewards – they would like to believe that the big thinkers of the world, the Abbes, the G's, the Obamas, the Merkels, have somehow handled our way through the global financial crisis. And that we are in for a brave new world, in which case tax and spend gets replaced by print and spend. Mm-hmm. And that's all okay. I don't personally believe it's all okay, but I don't believe that the question needs to be called any time soon. And I also don't believe that gold needs to win the war against the dollar, given the very large, disproportionate quantities of each that's available. I think that gold needs to lose the war less badly. And I believe that that's what happened – or will happen, pardon me. If you look back to 2001 and 2002, periods of time when gold did very well – That was a period of time when both gold and the U.S. dollar did well relative to other currencies. It's just that that gold did very well in gold terms too. And I note that very recently, the down moves in, in the dollar have been muted, but the up moves in gold have been fairly strong. And my suspicion is that the dollar will continue strong relative to other currencies as a consequence of their doing poorly, but that gold will do well in every term. And I say that for the following reason. The primary savings instrument in the world right now is the U.S. dollar-denominated U.S. 10-year treasury note. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the financial instrument against the metric against which all other financial instruments are gauged. And the value proposition offered up by the U.S. 10-year Treasury is as follows. The U.S. Treasury absolutely promises to pay the holder, uh, I think, 1.61% over 10 years, which means if you give them $100,000 today, uh, they give you back some number like $116,000 in 10 years. The nominal return on that isn't very attractive. In fact, Jim Grant has called it return-free risk, which I think is a particularly damning phrase. But there are two other ways to look at it, both of which are surprisingly less attractive. First of all, if you look at the rate at 161 basis points, 1.61%, and you put it against the CPI rate of inflation at 1.6%, the U.S. Treasury proposes to pay you one-tenth Of 1% a year, which means in the context of your purchasing power, you give them $100,000, and 10 years from now, they give you back $100,000. That's particularly unattractive. But it gets less attractive if you look at it in terms of the real depreciation of the purchasing power of the dollar. The people who construct the CPI don't shop at the same place that your readers and listeners do, and they don't shop at the same place that I do. My experience has been that the purchasing power of the basket of goods and services that makes my life liv- livable depreciates at four or five percent a year. And by that metric, if they propose to pay me 1.6, In a currency that is devaluing by 4% a year, what they're saying for for me is that they are going to preside over a decline in my purchasing power of 2.4% a year, cumulative and compounded over 10 years, which is a different way of saying if I give them $100,000, they're going to give me back $60,000 in purchasing power. And for me, that's not acceptable. That's why I say that arithmetically, gold is locked in a war with a savings instrument where I don't think gold can help but win. Rick, from
0: portfolio perspective, I, I know that you have um, segregated accounts. I'm, assur- I'm sure they're probably either denominated in U.S. dollars or Canadian dollars or whatever dollar currency that um, we can use as a reference point. And you actually cite, based on the... This recent pullback in commodity markets that one of probably the strengths that you have at Sprott is the the dry powder, which is U.S. dollar effectively. I, I have the same thing in my portfolio where I actually use the currency as, as a hedge um, because if you're not long equities, then... By you having the currency, this, this gives you either both the U.S. dollar exposure, plus it gives you the ability to utilize that dry powder. Now, from a purchasing power perspective, these these metrics that you provided are very interesting. But what about from this whole dry powder perspective? I don't know how you quantify that value, but there clearly is a value in terms of liquidity and cash to be able to utilize into some investments? And, and how do you take that into
1: consideration with your portfolios that you help manage? Well, Peter, you've raised a critical point, which is that U.S. dollar cash holdings come at a cost that's greater than people know. That notwithstanding, my portfolios are 25% or 30% in cash. Yeah. And that's occurring for two reasons. Uh, I expect that the future will be much more volatile than the present And while I'm not saying that we're going to have a crisis like we had in 2008, I'm not going to say that we aren't going to have one either. I have had periods of time in my life when I had a lot of cash, and I've had periods of time in my life when I didn't have much cash. And I can assure you that I was much happier during periods of time in my life when I had a lot of cash. So despite the fact that the cash is costing me 250 basis points a year, I consider that a curse that I have to bear because cash gives you the means and the courage to take advantage of either volatility or the financial mistakes of others, mm-hmm. and I suspect that we will see a lot of volatility and I will sp- suspect that we 'll see a lot of financial mistakes, perhaps cumulating you know perhaps cumulatively like the two thousand eight of it i 'm not saying it 's going to happen but i 'm not saying it 's not going to happen right. so I believe that you have to have substantial liquidity in the account. I just believe that you need to charge yourself for it at least psychically at a two and a half percent or a three percent annual burden. Okay. I'm willing to bear that burden because, as you suggest, the opportunity afforded by having cash during liquidity squeezes is responsible for most of my fortune today. Do you put on an um, FX trader cap as well?
0: Because if you're going to be in cash, then do you say, okay, so which form of currency is the best one? And I'll tell you, if that's what I did because I, I said, okay, if I'm going to hold currency, then okay, they all look terrible u s dollars the
1: inevitable choice in my from my perspective, Peter. I love the idea I have to make a confession to you, uh-huh. which is that my currency trading track record my head my currency hedging track record is almost unblemished by success, and the consequence of that is that while i 'm a relatively good credit analyst and mm. investor, uh, and while i 'm very courageous at market bottoms uh, I, I employ the simplest of all hedges, which is to maintain a reasonable amount of precious metals and reasonable amount of cash and try and conduct myself as a value investor in the context of my more conventional assets. Okay. Very reasonable. Rick,
0: I'm sure you're following this as well, as that China and Chinese future markets are playing an ever-increasing role in terms of the volume for many different commodities right now there's a lot that allows me to speculate that the PBOC has major influence on the commercial buyers and sellers of their commodity markets um using the chinese commercial banks as as a vehicle to participate in the volume then you have you know uh chinese retail uh speculators as well it's coincidental that Chinese is also the largest importer or user of many of these commodities. Um, And when you take a look at how Chinese equities have performed the last, say, year or so, you've seen them perform um, quite well, um, still off of its 2009 highs, what, what do you think is the dynamic now that the Chinese have in terms of commodity prices and due to their, their volume levels surpassing that of like Chicago, New York, and London for many of the, maybe not gold and silver or oil, but for things like iron ore, soybeans, they're, they're, they have that impact now. And they, through the PBOC, they can
1: exert that influence as well. A uh, large and complex question. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, certainly the macro impact of China is large and good. Uh, 30-something years ago, of course, Deng Xiaoping said to be rich is glorious. And if you think about the last 50 years, that was probably the best phrase uttered in the last 50 years in mankind. It, is there a misinterpretation of that line? I've always heard that as well. I'm I don't believe there is. Okay. I don't believe there is. I think Deng Xiaoping was referring uh, in particular, in that speech, to an unofficial experiment where a commune secretly allowed individual workers to farm their ancestral plots rather than communally, and the economic impact of that was a fourfold increase in production. Mm-hmm. And Dong Xiaoping's subsequent statement about it didn't matter whether the cat was red or black as long as it caught mice suggested a realization on behalf of at least part of the Politburo that some individual initiative was going to have to take place in order for China to feed its people and provide for the advancement that the leadership desired. And that realization, uh, this so-called mixed system, which you would really have to call a fascist system, uh, has produced really remarkable results. Now, that result was predictable. I don't want to seem patronizing to you because of your own ethnicity, but if you look at the the, uh, success of the Chinese diaspora on a global basis, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that if you allowed the Chinese people to become slightly more free, that they would become rapidly more rich, which is precisely what occurred. Um, And... The leadership in China has acquired sophistication in financial markets at an extraordinarily rapid rate. We at Sprott manage money on behalf of a couple Chinese parastatal enterprises. And the increasing sophistication of our counterparties over the last 10 years has been astonishing. Uh, to the point where clients have become in every way, shape, or form peers. It makes perfect sense that the People's Bank of China, uh, recognizing China's real and psychological impact on commodities markets, would learn how to take advantage of that and use markets to their own impact. There were times over the past decade where the Chinese were certainly victimized by Western interests in commodities markets, and it makes perfect sense that the Chinese would learn from that experience and figure the turnabout was fair play, which of course it is. I also believe that it is difficult for the trajectory of Chinese growth to continue as it has for two reasons. One, it is one must recognize that Chinese the aggregate GDP in China is up Three and a half or fourfold in 10 years. And 5% growth is greater growth on this larger number than 10% growth was in a smaller number. It's very difficult to grow progressively larger numbers by the same amount. The second thing is it's increasingly difficult for the small number of people that actually run China to run an economy that's growing as rapidly or an economy that has more and more and more power centers. So the ability of the center to manage without the feedback loop of a real market is increasingly more difficult. And I think the distortions that you're seeing in the Chinese market are really a function of 10,000 people trying to rule 1.2 billion people or 1.25 billion people without... The very messy feedback that you would see in a freer market. And my suspicion is that some of the increase in the equities prices in China is due, one, to their having been probably oversold, but also due to a realization in China that there was both mis and mal investment as a consequence of the lending binge that the peristatals engaged in. I note that there is consistent net outflows of capital from China despite the very large inflows of foreign direct investment into China. And that would tell me that the people in China that are generating substantial economic surpluses are not convinced that the near-term problems in China are over. Long-term, I'm still very much a China bull. Uh, I'm a China bull... I think because of Chinese culture, because of the tradition in China of saving, because of the tradition in China of education, and because the senior people running the Chinese institutions that we come in contact with seem genuinely concerned about improving freedom in China and increasing the lot of the Chinese worker. Uh, and so I suspect that the situation that we see in front of us is a two- or three-year hiatus, uh, but one where the economy in the longer term is still very much on track. Just a comment to that,
0: Rick, is that um, I, I know a lot of people in the West often refer to like the miracle of, of China to ex- some extent. And you mentioned a very um, important point in which despite the, the capital controls that still actually exist in these economies, you're seeing a lot of at least individual retail capital um, leave actually to the West. And, and probably a great example of that is the emergence of um, EB-5 programs, the ability for um, individuals in Asia to acquire citizenship in um, countries like the U.S., and they're willing to pay up quite a bit of, bit of um, money to do so uh, to obtain, uh, I guess, its a initial uh, resident status uh, initially, which hopefully can turn into U.S. citizenship. So I think one of the interesting perspectives, this is more of a comment than anything else, but it's, it's more about that I, I get a sense that Asians are still very jaded about the institutions there throughout Asia, there's quite a big mistrust actually for China. You can clearly see that within the activities of, um, the South China sea, the land grabbing. So, so despite the, the miracle and wonder of that, and despite it's continuously opening up, um, you also get to see the sense that look, if people are going to get, uh, any kind of windfall, for example, there's still a preference to go to the West and, and reap a, a prosperous life from, from that perspective. I'll give you one interesting anecdotal story is that despite being productive and being able to have like a job, making a lot of income, what many people are willing to sacrifice is all of that in order to have an idle um, life in North America to some extent. So just an interesting observation I thought I'd share with you.
1: I think that's accurate. And I, you know, I, I, I might say that a person in today's world of any ethnicity, uh, given the, given the increasing, increasing politicization of the world and the increasing envy evident in the world, probably everybody needs to do something to diversify some of their wealth internationally. Uh, my definition of political risk is that the riskiest government that you're confronted with is the one that's closest to you. And you know, as a consequence of that, uh, my wife and I have certainly legally diversified our portfolio around the world, And one wouldn't expect modern Chinese to be more trusting of their government than I am of mine. The, I in addition to living in the United States, I also live in Canada, and I uh, own a condo in downtown Vancouver in a building that was newly constructed of red marble red being useful for marketing in China. And probably 60% of the units in the building are owned by Hong Kong or mainland Chinese and mostly unoccupied, uh, if you will, sort of a bolt hole in Canada, which I think is intelligent for people of any ethnic or political origin.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, Rick, prior to the decline of um, oil prices recently, I know that you were very bullish on uranium. I, I guess my question is this, is that now with the decline of some of these major commodities, where, where does a, a commodity like uranium fit into, say, your buy now lists? Do you, are you going to start now to cue what's happening in the oil sector space and take a look at the implications of the contagion factors of? Uh, what's happening in oil as uh, a priority over uranium? Um, as you know, capital is limited to some extent. Maybe not for guys like you, but it, it might be limited. And you got to assess each opportunity cost to some extent.
1: The answer is that uranium is relatively less attractive for two reasons. The precipitous decline in uranium prices that occurred from an $80 level, which is probably a market clearing level, was really a consequence of Fukushima. And the inevitability of restarts in Japan was partially predicated on $90 oil, but more importantly, on $18 per mm MMBTU liquefied natural gas. The consequence of the drop in oil prices has met a drop in the price of liquefied natural gas, which takes some of the pressure off of Japan to restart their nuclear plants. From a geopolitical point of view, nuclear power is still critical to Japan because Japan has a political um, policy of uh, energy security. And nuclear power is so efficient relative to the volume of the fuel that it's the only form of energy that Japan can meet its stated goals of having five years of supply on Japanese soil from. It would take too much coal, it would take too much natural gas. Uh, the only way that they can solve their political problem is with nuclear power. But the pressure is off of them. And the pressure is off of them because there is a global shortage of demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we see in uranium and what we see in oil isn't really a supply problem, despite what you might read about in the press. It's the fact that demand is anemic. That's why you see a 40% decline in agricultural prices. It's why you see a dollar off the copper price. It's why you see $50 off the oil price. Until the economic recovery that the recovery in equity prices is predicated on occurs, a real recovery, not an interest rate-led recovery, but a recovery that sees income, disposable income, real incomes of workers increase, you're going to see soft energy prices, and that's going to be, mean soft uranium prices too. Interesting. I,
0: I know you're spending a lot of time in, in Calgary as well. I, I'm assuming participating in potential oil sands related projects i've heard a lot of interpretations about the economic viability of oil sands especially relative to the the oil shale boom that's occurring the world over what are your thoughts and is there still a competitive advantage as as far as oil sands as as a whole especially relative to
1: the opportunities that exist within the oil shale boom new construction of oil sands plants At these oil prices don't work. The existing facilities work because of the enormous amount of stranded capital Mm -hmm. and the very low interest rates that these companies are paying on their debt service. They work better because uh, the Western Canadian sedimentary basin has a tremendous oversupply of natural gas. And the chief uh, variable cost in Uh, producing bitumen from oil sands is energy cost, ironically, from producing natural gas. So while the low energy prices hurt, of course, the price of bitumen and make it uneconomic to build new plants, they subsidize the operation of existing plants. Back to your relative question, or or back to your question about the relative merits of unconventional production, shale production, versus oil, oil sands production. Uh, the shale production is much more economic because of the lower capital costs associated with it and the quicker time to production. We are seeing, even at today's uh, energy prices, uh, highly attractive economic propositions in some of the better, oilier shale formations, both in the Western Canadian Central Sedimentary Basin and also in the United States, uh, which says something to the uh, incredible economics that have been generated as a consequence of this new technology, and, and in terms, I've I've also heard you
0: discuss about how currently with some of your funds you're acting more like um, a lender, and I know you're a big proponent of the intelligent investor, and one of the key merits of of um, the intelligent investor, or at least. If, if you're a buffetologist, as well as concepts like economic goodwill, looking for the most, I guess, uh, efficient kind of business to do or to invest into. And as you've indicated before as well, resources tend to be very capital intensive. So uh, w- what I'm observing is that um, you're acting like a lender to some extent to help facilitate these considerably resource-intensive businesses, which could pay off in spades for you um, through some kind of interest or or some kind of royalty fee that could be received back to you. is Is that the, as far as a kind of like a model, economic model or business model for investing or even looking for businesses that are replicating a, a similar model to you, do you find that to be probably the most capital efficient um, method to enter the resource space. I know there's companies like Royal Gold that act like a kind of like an investment banker for the space or Silver Wheaton. Is that more compelling to you when you're discussing about best of breed or you're saying that investors should be looking like getting into these, the resource space directly by investing in these capital intensive businesses, if it makes sense.
1: Well, one would be that my background is really as a credit analyst. Right. So I'm comfortable as a lender. The second is that current market conditions, as far as I'm concerned, uh, favor lending opportunities to equity opportunities. I think that's going to change, but I I can't tell you what it's going to be. Uh, the third is that uh, the, lending op- the lending opportunities that Sprott engages in are bridge and mezzanine financings. In effect, we create our own junk debt. Right. When I use the phrase junk debt, you need to remember that the worst debt is better than the best equity on any individual balance sheet. At the Sprott level, over the last three years, I think we've generated a 15% internal rate of return in natural resource lending. During that same period of time, the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Index is off by 83% in nominal, per, in nominal terms and 90% in real terms. So over three years in a market that's generated a negative 83% return over three years, we've generated a positive 15% cumulative and compounding return per annum, which says something to the about the efficacy of a portfolio in current market conditions. Uh, generated by intelligent lending operations. The reputation I enjoy in natural resource investing circles is really a consequence of equity operations during two different points in time in my career, the bear market bottom that occurred in 1989, 90, and 91, and the bear market bottom that occurred in 1998 through 2002. So I would expect that I will ultimately enjoy better returns from being an aggressive uh, equity investor in the context of this market. But for right now, the ability to generate in an extremely bad market, uh, very nice, mid-teen internal rates of return is pretty attractive. Rick, are you
0: implying that for the do-it-yourself investor that, look – relative especially to you and, and Sprott, there's a clear competitive advantage from that perspective. Is, is there even any competitive advantage from, from, a say, for example, a person listening right now as, as a retail investor where they're not able
1: to negotiate where That's they correct. can participate from in the capital That's structure? That's correct. I, I have a huge advantage over them. Most retail investors that would participate in this market would participate by, be, by buying junk bonds which were created by Bay Street or Wall Street that favor the issuer, not the investor. We recently did a survey of 52 junk bonds in North American markets, and we found that the covenants were so ridiculous that we could only invest in two out of 52. Uh, The deck is really, really, really stacked against the individual investor in the context of junk debt markets or debt markets generally, except where the investor takes a passive interest by buying shares in a lender, Mm -hmm. Uh, either a hybrid lender uh, like Royal Gold or Franco Nevada or Silver Wheaton or Altius, or a more formal lender like Sprott.
0: Right. I guess that's full circle to the whole question, right? In terms of looking at the the best business models that anyone can invest in and, and kind of like that approach that potentially these entities... Not, not to tout sprot or anything like that, but potentially right. these entities do have a competitive advantage because I know that you get asked this a hundred times, and more than you probably like is that everyone 's always asking you, Rick, like you know what are the good investing opportunities, and obviously you 're obliged to come up with some kind of answer for them um, without actually providing the precautionary tale about your advantages of being able to pick and choose how you want to get in in terms of. The capital structures of these investing opportunities?
1: Well, first off, feel free to tout Sprot anytime you want to. But <laughs> moving back to the question, I think with 7.2 billion people on Earth, there are 7.2 billion needs. And uh, a discussion of an appropriate investor, or an, uh, pardon me, an appropriate investment, begins first with a discussion of what's appropriate to each individual investor. Having done this for 35 years, I'm pretty good at a one-on-one basis in debriefing investors uh, and helping them come to the realization or helping them aid me in determining what sort of needs, prejudices, time preferences, risk tolerances, and things like that are appropriate. But answering a one-size-fits-all question is extremely dangerous. I can say in a very broad sense, uh, holding cash has costs, but bear the costs and hold some cash it gives you means and courage. I can also say in a very broad sense, um, hold gold for the long term because it's good in bad situations and hope it doesn't go up in price because that exposes you to a bad situation. But beyond that, I need to say in terms of the distribution of the rest of your portfolio, particularly in the context of individual security selection, uh, the question deals as much with the needs and the means of the individual as it does the attributes of each individual portfolio selection.
0: (laughs) Well-spoken. Rick, you um, talk a lot about The Intelligent Investor. I mentioned that earlier. What do you think is so critical about that book, and what else is in your library currently, or what else interests you in terms of your own personal library?
1: What's wonderful about The Intelligent Investor is that it's easy to read. Uh, Ben Graham understands the investment process so well that he doesn't need to use big words. It's in English, uh, and it's the most approachable investment book that is worthy to read that I have ever read. I would go so far as to say the value of the lessons relative to the effort required to absorb them makes The Intelligent Investor the best investment book ever written. We're talking about the original
0: copy, right? Not like the the new modern prints where there's so many different prologues. Is that that correct?
1: uh, Yes, I think that's the case. Although some of the prologues are very useful because they put the lessons in recent context. Mm Uh, They're sort of annotated versions of um, Graham, which is useful. I'm, like every other analyst I know, particularly attracted to two parts of the intelligent investor. One is the margin of safety, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is useful. And it's it's useful in your own portfolio, too. Building a margin of safety personally with cash and gold is useful. But finding businesses that have margins of safety through durable competitive moats, through good balance sheets, through reasonable operating margins, is very important. Getting away from that, that is moving from an investment operation, I would describe investment as um, the allocation of capital with the expectation of a return of capital employed, to a a more speculative activity in, in which I think an investor acknowledges risks to that very capital in terms of in return for increasing potential returns on capital employed uh, involves going farther and farther and farther from that acceptable margin of safety the other lesson that's critical in graham is the whole chapter on mr market which i think is the best chapter written in investment history where graham talks about you being in partnership with the mythical partner the market mr market who is a manic depressive one day comes to work elated about the biz- the business that you have with him and is willing to pay you twice what it's worth. And another day comes back in the depressive side of the manic depressive and is willing to sell you that business which you understand at half of what it's worth. And Ben Graham uh, describing your obligation to yourself and your family not to be taken in by the manic depressive nature of your business partner the market as a whole but rather to use that manic depressive swing to your own advantage Uh, and I'm not suggesting that the listeners to this take this Colesnose version of intelligent investor (laughs) as an excuse not to read the book it's absolutely critical that you read the book and I think it's absolutely critical if you absorb the information easily and if you enjoy the book that you go on and you read Graham's magnum opus, which is securities analysis. I-, I like to tell people that if they read, understand, and most importantly employ the lessons in the intelligent investor, that they will make reasonable sums of money in their investment operations if they employ the lessons. I believe that investors who read, understand, and rigorously employ the techniques in securities analysis won't make reasonable sums of money. They'll become rich over time. But it's important that you don't just buy the book. You have to read the book. And you have to read the book thoroughly enough to understand it. And then most importantly, you have to employ it on a day-by-day basis, which is a very difficult thing to do. What do you think
0: about Graham's... Ultimate advocate Warren Buffett and his ability to um, invest in the resource space. He, I, I would argue, he's probably more successful at like you know uh, food and beverage businesses relative to commodities um, or finding like iterations of of getting exposure through that like, through companies like Burlington Northern, for example. Why do you think Warren Buffett hasn't really been able to implement? As, as much success as being basically following Graham's gospel to some extent um, in the resource space.
1: Well, remember that Buffett started off in the resource space. His mm-hmm. first investment was a farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he invested in a farm when farms were very unpopular, and the cash rents uh, were attractive relative to uh, his cost of capital. What Buffett discovered really is a consequence of the extraordinary success that he enjoyed was that he had to earn uh, consistent returns on very large amounts of capital. His current challenge, I think, is deploying somewhat in excess of $350 billion in capital, Mm. which is a challenge that I unfortunately don't share with him. And uh, Buffett believed for a substantial part of his career that he didn't want to be involved in capital-intensive cyclical businesses as a consequence of the need to return consistent returns on capital employed. What Buffett has discovered very recently over the last 10 or 15 years, both in the reinsurance business but also in his investment operations, is his ability to deploy capital in capital-intensive businesses and, I dare say, cyclical businesses gives him a durable competitive advantage. And you have seen uh, over the last three years investments in business like Sinopec, ConocoPhillips, and Burlington Northern, which is a resource company on drag. Uh, the fact that he has uh, varied his investment stance very substantially, and he has begun to employ contrarian strategies in capital-intensive cyclical businesses at a time when he wouldn't have done it. In fact, I would suggest to you that his willingness to uh, buy building products businesses and the mobile home business in a period of very difficult real estate transactions, says that he is increasingly willing to use his access and his low cost of capital as a competitive advantage in the very capital-intensive and cyclical businesses that earlier in his career he would have avoided. But but do you think that's almost more of a byproduct? It's almost
0: like the the chicken and the egg. It's actually... You know, taking advantage of the the advantages of the reinsurance business that gives you the excess capital that allows you to
1: kind of explore what opportunities I, exist, rather than I, originating. I, I, okay. I think that's absolutely true. I think that the foundations of Buffett's fortune were decisions like Geico yeah. or Coca Cola, where he understood the fact that people weren't paying enough intangible uh, uh, enough attention to the cash generating power of the intangibles. Uh, and, and finding mispriced assets. The other advantage that Buffett uh, has, and I think this is a wonderful advantage, is that despite his exhortations that all of us should pay more tax, because his operation, which is in effect a hedge fund, yeah. is wrapped up in a supercat reinsurance wrapper, and because he can set his loss reserves at almost any number he wants to, pr- provided that he hasn't dividend out his reserve... Mm -hmm. While he tells all of us that we should pay more tax, his own tax bill is ironically very, very, very small. Mm. And if you look at an investor that is as successful as Buffett over 10 years, where the hedge fund investor is taxable and Buffett, as a consequence of operating in an insurance wrapper, isn't taxable, that's an enormous advantage uh, to the self-professed tax advocate. He's, uh, in addition to being brilliant in every other facet… He is brilliant talking his own book and uh, diffusing criticism of his enormous wealth by saying the rich should pay more taxes, while he, of course, structures his life to avoid the same. On
0: that subject of, of taxes and, and regulation <laughs> and capital controls, one of the big trends that I'm observing, and I'm sure maybe you've observed this as well, is the the ever larger presence of Oligarchs and how it is becoming an economy for plutocrats and technocrats, and which is advantageous for these multinationals. And I've seen after 2008, after the oligarchs were able to consolidate more, you know, you have mergers like Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, which a few years ago might not even be legal. Um, but then you have regulation, you got FINRA, FATCA. It, it seems to me as if. That whole theme of the divide between the rich and the wealthy is becoming ever more so transparent and what's actually becoming a big factor of this is is that now that the oligarchs have been able to obtain what it is that they need to obtain um, it seems as if all the regulation is making it more difficult for anyone else to take advantage of those opportunities that exist in the economy where I'm heading with this is basically if we were to create the next Warren Buffett or Rick Rule and we we were in a laboratory trying to create that person starting from the beginning, what opportunities do you think would exist, especially for an, an upstart from some perspective? Because maybe you might be able to have gotten in into reinsurance, say, during the time of Buffett maybe less so the opportunity now due to all of this consolidation roll up that's happening. And I know you see it in the oil space because you're seeing the effects of contagion, how it's affecting even the banks, for example. But okay, so where's the opportunity and how can you actually maneuver? I'm asking you, Rick, to be reborn again and and say how you would navigate in this new environment if you had to start from the beginning.
1: Well, probably I'd do what you did, first of all, which is emigrate from North America to Asia or perhaps to the Middle East. Uh Uh, I think the level of social envy in emerging markets is less extraordinary than it is in developed markets. Uh, I, I would encourage any young person to do what I did, which is to find something that they absolutely love and, in fact, would do for free if it didn't pay so well. Uh, The way that you increase your wealth is by increasing the utility that you offer other people. And mercifully, the political class doesn't have the ability to legislate away opportunity. There are always crises, uh, which, as an example, they can't legislate away. Now, the truth is that as the world becomes more politicized, uh, entrepreneurs, even entrepreneurs as small as myself have to pay attention not just to markets, but also to politics. Uh, It is true, as Mencken says, that uh, elections really are merely advanced auctions of stolen property. And the oligarchs that you describe or the corporate classes are certainly the high bidders in those circumstances. And there is uh, certainly client capitalism in every market of the world. But the truth is that the great big thinkers, uh, be they corporate or be they Obamas, are not as smart as the market as a whole and can't either deny us opportunity or the ability to take advantage of those same oligarchs in crisis. And further, uh, finding cracks in what they do, Uh, finding, as an example, uh, Citicorp Mm -hmm. that walks away from a major part of their business as a consequence of Basel III, And taking advantage of the opportunities that the big banks walk away from. I mean, if you're Sprott with a $350 million balance sheet, what is a crumb for one of your competitors, like the Royal Bank of Canada or Citicorp, Mm -hmm. is a banquet for us. And the very size at which they operate and the very politically constrained nature of their operations is such that opportunities that we were precluded from entering are now widely available to us. I I would say, in real answer to your question, that an entity the size of Sprott uh, can't compete with an entity the size of Citicorp. But conversely, an entity the size of Citicorp can't compete with an entity like Sprott either. But doesn't Sprott still need then to
0: experience the the headaches of the regulatory environment? And and that's Part of the reason why these entities are willing to give you some of those breadcrumbs, because you still have to qualify, right?
1: Well, let's, let's be very clear. They don't give us those breadcrumbs. No, they don't. <laughs> they just can't take advantage of them. One consequence that's germane to our discussion probably is Basel III. One consequence of Basel III is that the big banks, the money center banks, enjoy an enormous subsidy, They get to borrow money from central governments at the short-term window at very low interest rates. And those very low interest rates also uh, put pressure on deposit rates. And they get to lend that money back to sovereign governments by way of five-year notes and gain 120 or 130 basis point spread, a time spread. And importantly, they don't have to reserve for that on their balance sheet at all. If they say that security is going to be held to maturity, they don't have to either market to market or they don't have to reserve against it. But the consequence of the fact that they can do that sort of transaction risk free and without reserving means that they are increasingly less active in competing with us. In private transactions mm-hmm. that they have to A, mark to market, and they B, have to reserve against. An example from the SPROT viewpoint is that we were able in the middle of last year to successfully compete with a major Canadian chartered bank for the senior secured $160 million tranche in the Altius transaction. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, that financing transaction never would have fallen to an independent player like Sprott. It would have been gobbled up by the big money center banks. But as a consequence of Basel III, there's probably 40 or $50 billion worth of resource project financing that will take place in the next two or three years that will, in fact, fall to non-traditional players, players like Sprott and players like the sovereign wealth funds. But, but Rick, you know, a, a critic could be sitting here and saying, hey,
0: here's Rook Rule talking about how he's a small player Rel- relative to potentially the listener. They could be saying, hey, Rick, you're on that other side as well. Who, who are you to say that you're that small player relative to City? Whereas there's a bunch of other guys that don't have that kind of balance sheet that you have. They they don't have the $350 million balance sheet. They only have a $3.50 balance
1: sheet. Three dollar and fifty cents US <laughs> buy one and a half shares of Sprott. And we would encourage him to do it. Play alongside of us. Uh, a three I mean a three dollar and fifty cent balance sheet. Unfortunately, in today's world, is good for most of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Um, but an investor with a fifty thousand dollar balance sheet can compete very effectively. How so? Uh, compete compete very effectively in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, one thing is that they can compete against professional investors because they don't have to cast their results on a quarterly basis. They can think like Buffett does on a 10-year basis. That's an enormous advantage. Uh, professional investor, unless that, unless that investor like myself has gated funds has an odd set of circumstances when his or her sector is popular, particularly an open-ended mutual fund. Money flows into the fund when the equities in the fund are overpriced and he or she shouldn't be investing. Conversely, when the sector is unpopular and valuations are cheap, the money flows out of the fund. So the professional investor is forced to buy high and sell low. While the private investor, with discipline, reporting to no one other than him or herself, can take advantage of the structural imperfection of the open-end mutual funds by being, in effect, pawnbroker to the trade affected by Mr. Market. Rick, how do you go out stating that you try to
0: have the perspective as long-term as possible when you just also acknowledge that the mandate of open-end funds is about you know quarter by quarter, not even quarter by quarter, I have a a monthly redemption window, so like on a monthly basis where performance is critical how how do you balance that there's a a structural fund perspective that you need to be concerned about, which affects your pockets and then there's a you know investing
1: principal perspective that you try to maintain the performance that I was able to generate through the decade of the uh, 90s and the early part of the, de- of the last decade was good enough that I had an awful lot of money uh, offered to me. More mm-hmm. money, in fact, that I could reasonably allocate. So I segregated among investors by imposing a 10-year gate. I didn't take any money that didn't have a 10-year lockup. Okay. I had literally billions of dollars offered to me literally billions of dollars offered to me if I would offer up quarterly liquidity. And I said to those investors, the long-term perspective that gave me the track record which attracts you would be obviated by the strictures that you're trying to put on me with quarterly liquidity. So although I would love to manage money for you, given that I manage money on a performance basis, you are setting up a a set of circumstances where I can't perform, and hence I can't be paid. Mm-hmm. And hence, I don't want the money. Does
0: does it frustrate you? Because I spend a lot of time in emerging markets, frontier markets, where the whole closed end fund structure is actually led to uh, malinvestment because of those lockups, where you know people are making private equity investments, um, NAVs are being calculated by. Uh, valuers that effectively the asset manager is paying, leading to massive discounts to NAVs. D- doesn't that, because I'm a big advocate of open end funds, more as much transparency as possible, but I understand that you have to do what you need to do to make your investments work. But then there's a whole group of people that have actually taken advantage of that, and there's a whole bunch of frustrated
1: investors from that perspective. Well, there's scumballs in every investing activity. And uh, a fund manager, be it a hedge fund manager or a closed-end fund manager, that can put in their uh, bylaws or articles of incorporation valuation standards that are antithetical to the interest of uh, investors is a criminal. Uh, Criminal is too harsh a word. If If there was full and fair disclosure, they aren't a criminal. They're just a creep. Right. Uh, To the extent that investors invest with creeps, it's not the creep's fault, it's the investor's fault. I personally have enjoyed very good results over 30 years personally investing in closed-end funds that were gated. But Mm -hmm. I, of course, chose them fairly well. And I am more likely to invest with a manager that has good long-term performance, irrespective of the gate. In other words, I would rather invest with a good investor with a five- or ten-year gate than invest with an average investor that had free liquidity. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and that isn't to say that Sprott doesn't have an important business in open-end funds. The open-end funds that we have performed extraordinarily well in the period 1990 to 2011, but they've performed very poorly, at least in terms of our resource funds, In the 2012 to 2014, 2015 time frame, Mm. there is an important investor segment, customers of ours, the Canadian retail investor, that is more comfortable with an open-end structure than a closed-end structure. And the consequence of that is that we have to serve them. In the U.S. market, which is very different, we don't have an open-ended 40s Act product, an open-ended mutual fund. What we've chosen to do to access the U.S. market... Our passive products, uh, gold, silver, and platinum palladium investment trusts, which we consider to be superior to ETFs, Mm -hmm. albeit with a compressed fee structure, and our ETF products, where we compete with the traditional load and no-load Forties Act open-end products with ETFs that are exchange-traded products with much larger, pardon me, much smaller fee structures. Rick,
0: I think we should end this off with a word association game. Uh, the I'll concept is, I'm going to say a word, you tell me the first thing that comes to mind, and no, I'm not going to mention Sprout. How's that sound?
1: <laughs> that, that, that's unfortunate, but go that's ahead. That's
0: unfortunate. Okay. Remimbi. Ah, uh, volatility. Canada. Caution. Quantitative easing.
1: Counterfeiting. Platinum. Uh, a word, a word, diesel. Interesting. That's a very interesting choice. The um, use of platinum, of course, yes, being yes, yes. in
0: catalytic conversion for diesel engines. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Greatest investor of all
1: time. Uh, it hurts me to say it, but no, you no, know, you know who it was? It was Imelda Marcos. Uh, Imelda Marcos built a fortune estimated at $3 billion. Uh, From the uh, evidence, based on her husband's salary at $25,000 a year, she did it speculating on women's shoes and undergarments. So she'd have to be the best investor of all times. Interesting. Um, (laughs) Gold coins. Uh, Several words. Antidote to bullion, I guess. Okay. Free markets. Um equity
0: this conversation
1: oh pleasant interesting
0: thank you Rick it was great having you on
1: my pleasure we hope you enjoyed
0: this mastermind session if you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital please email info at phx-cap.com